Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This holiday season, who's delivering the perfect gift experience? Sock Club! Sock Club! Jesus Christ. Quality American-made socks are sent straight to your loved one's door, featuring different designs and a personal note every month. It's the gift that keeps on giving all year. You can just pull up your little pant leg and say, check out these Sock Club socks. My favorites are the turquoise ones with the rainbow stripes. I'm wearing those right now. Yeah, those were actually my socks. (laughs) How about you guys? That's what happens with Sock Club socks. Other people in your family take them from you. (laughs) Because they're awesome. But it does make sorting the laundry that much more fun. Go to SockClub.com and get 15% (laughs) off using discount code CRIME at checkout. Give Sock Club. Club. Come on, guys. Give Sock Club. Club. You can't really be this bad at this. Sock Club. Sock Club. This holiday season. From a code crime. We could do a holiday song. We could do a holiday sock club song, like around, and we could all be like, sock club, club sock, sock club, sock, you know, like a little song. One sock club, two sock club. <laughs> Promo code crime, promo code crime. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime. And this week, a look at the second season of a podcast we've talked about before on the show, and sometimes we've held it up as a story without an ending. So should you commit once again to the CBC podcast, Someone Knows Something? I guess you're going to find out. So joining me to show what getting that done looks like is the host of These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast, my true crime co-author and real life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. I'll show you what getting it done means. (laughs) Ew. Also (laughs) joining... what I meant. Sock Club! (laughs) (laughs) Also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and semi-pro Christmas cookie baker. Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. I've had to switch to water because I've been eating so many of those cookies. So no wine tonight, folks. Your title just keeps like getting longer and longer every week. All of your accolades and accomplishments. I can't help but say them all, you know? I know. I know. What's going to be next? I don't know. And finally, it's our favorite non-nominee to the Trump cabinet, the always cynical (laughs) and truly super talented noir novelist, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> wow that's all, all i got that's yeah all I people got. are still tweeting about last week's greeting merry fucking christmas yep. wasn't it season's fucking greetings <laughs> no, it was something like that it yeah. was i try to i try to be inclusive <laughs> well we appreciate that uh we also appreciate by the way how you have been doing a bang-up job curating the items that our listeners have been purchasing as holiday gifts using the amazon link at crimewriterson.com we've been getting lots of tweets and emails people saying they are using that link to do their holiday shopping and i'm wondering toby 
Have you had a chance to look at what our listeners purchased this week? And would you like to highlight a few of those items? I would. All right. Let her rip. The Maine is in the state of Maine. The Maine sales company, Door Draft Light Dust Odor Stopper, three inches by 38 inches, all natural, unscented chickadees. What? Chickadees? Huh. It's one of those things you put at the bottom of the door to stop drafts, but it also stops smells from coming in? Yeah. Or is it <laughs> a live What's bird? What's the chickadees part? I, do is you it know? decorated? Does it look like a bird? We can't see it. We just get the list. There's no. There's just a description. All right. We'll go on to the next one. <laughs> okay. One hash jar-colored coconut oil. What color is a so, jar? <laughs> yeah. That was my question. <laughs> jar-colored? <laughs> Okay. We need to add some coloring to this coconut oil. I know. Uh, Jar. (laughs) The last pruning shear you will buy. (laughs) Stainless steel hand pruner. This bypass pruner is a garden shear, hedge clipper, and tree trimmer. A professi. That's the name of the item? And I was going to shout it because it's all in caps. Damn, that's very the specific. The last pruning shear you will buy. I like it. Because you're going to be like murdered murder with weapon. it. Yeah, that's, right. yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Meow Awana catnip buds, purple passion large. <laughs> Is that medical Meow or a recreational Meow It's for your cat glaucoma. I don't think you can get medical through Amazon. <laughs> oh. So this is obviously in Colorado or Washington. Is that from a hiss um, dispensary? Oh. <laughs> oh wah, 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 wah. All right. Find the things I bought, Toby. I bought some good ones. Did you buy the Busted Knuckle Garage BKG-129 Magnetic Finger Tool? Uh, no. <laughs> a magnetic finger tool? I don't have a garage. Tool? I have a barn. I like it. Did you buy the Jelt Unisex Flexible Elastic Grippy Gel Belt Medium Black Granite? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I bought okay. some uh, padded bike shorts for spin class. It's like, it's like the spork of belts. Uh, did you buy a Men's You Can't Scare Me, I Have Three Daughters Funny Family Dad shirt, large navy. (laughs) Somewhere there's a dad already practicing his smile. (laughs) Three piece Finty Apple pencil cap holder, nib cover, lightning cable adapter tether for iPad Pro Pencil Green, glow in the dark. It's very specific. Covers your nib. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even know I had a nib. (laughs) Finally, uh, Funko 2296 Pop Movies Halloween Michael Myers action figure. That's very Christmassy. Oh. <laughs> wow, that's uplifting. An wow. Action figure. What's the action mm-hmm. in that thing? I think it's probably a stab hand. <laughs> well, we once again want to thank the listeners of Crime Writers On for using the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com to do all of your holiday and apparently other shopping, you can go to our website, just right-click on that Amazon link and bookmark it. Use it to do all the shopping you would have done anyway, and you are supporting this podcast when you do so. So guys, before uh, we get started with the show, I just want to clear up a couple of scheduling things, both for you and our audience. Next week is a holiday week, so we are off. For Christmas. For Christmas. Oh, thank you. Or Hanukkah, or whatever holiday uh-huh. we celebrate here on the panel, although I think for the four of us oh, it's it is. good to get out of the salt mine once Christmas, in a while. Christmas, in fact. We will be back the following week, but then we're all taking a week off after that, because Kevin, you and I are going on vacation. So after this episode, our next episode will be on New Year's Eve. 
Yes. And Ooh. then we'll be back in the uh, second week in January. We're bi-weekly for just a couple of weeks. Yeah, just because, you know, we got kids. Life. Laura's got kids. Toby's got kids. I'm going to be yeah. the Virgin Mary in the Christmas pageant or something, you know? <laughs> oh. <laughs> that is so New Hampshire. <laughs> that is so not you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I'm just kidding. That, that already happened once where I was the uh, Virgin Mary because she was sick. <laughs> no you were one... the Stanton Virgin Mary? They called and they're like, hey, um, can you do us a favor? The Virgin Mary is sick. Can you stand in? And I'm like, you realize who you're asking to do this, right? Might I'm a whore, people. Flames. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and like it was like such a spectacle. I was in the living nativity and everybody in town came to gawk at me because they just couldn't believe that this church had put me in place of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> I think of the yeah, four of us, photos. though, you're probably the most qualified of the four of us. Ooh, we could do our own nativity scene. <laughs> uh, you and I could see, be Mary be like and Dick Joseph. Crow. I don't want to be Mary. Toby could be a shepherd. And if you one of those donkeys. I, actually, I went to a, uh, my British friends used to have this huge like dinner party right before Christmas. And it was always themed. There was like a Bollywood. There was pirates. There was... Uh, secret agents. That's potential um, to be racist one, the really secret easily. secret agent Christmas party. <laughs> Guess but where the, I'm uh, keeping my present. Exactly. The first one was the nativity. So my friend British Tim was the baby Jesus, <laughs> which, he, which was he was naked except for the pens and some boots. Nice. Oh, Wow, Baby it was British quite something. Tim. <laughs> British Tim. Well, British yeah. Tim. And people came back yeah. next year. Okay. All right. One of the things that I just wanted to mention briefly, we talked about it a little bit before the show. We are kind of moving away from the model where we are making you listen to or watch something in its entirety before listening to our podcast. We want to move toward a model where we are sort of saying, should you listen to this? Should you watch this? We think we it's a little more it. fair. Yeah, we hate it when someone's like, well, I got to listen to six episodes before I can listen to that one Crime Writers on episode. It's kind of, we don't want people to be discouraged. It's funny you say this because I actually had somebody in town this week I was talking to and he was like, hey, can you do me a favor? Which one of the podcasts you guys have talked about in the last couple months should I actually listen to because I just don't have time? Yeah, so we want to do a better job being a little bit more critical. Maybe baking the actual recommendation part into the show about the podcast or TV show or movie or documentary that we're talking about. So that's what we're going to do from now on. We're still going to have the same kinds of discussions and interviews we have before where we talk about storytelling, about plot, about cases and true crime. But we're going to maybe make it so that it's not so homework heavy for our listeners. And that is based on your feedback. So we do listen. All right. So let's move on to the topic at hand. I think it's pretty natural since we talk about so many podcasts podcast on this show to revisit a show we've talked about before, especially one taking on a brand new topic or crime case. That is the case with the CBC show, Someone Knows Something, our old friend, which we first talked about around a year ago. And then, of course, as we listen through to the end, we came to hold up the show as an example of a story without an ending. And, of course, we came to call the show Nobody no one knows, anything. Knows, knows Anything. Well, it's back. Someone Knows Something recently relaunched with a second season and a brand new case. And Toby, as well as a bunch of our listeners, said we should take a listen. So we did. So we're going to talk about Someone Knows Something season two. But first, let's check in with someone I spoke to who knows just a little bit about this true crime show. My name's David Ridgen, and I'm the host of Someone Knows Something, uh, produced out of Toronto by CBC Radio. Now, David, I hope you'll forgive us because after season one ended and before this update came out, we sometimes lovingly on our show called it 
no one knew anything. <laughs> um, but there have been some updates in the Adrian McNaughton case. You released a little update episode a few days ago. The police, for one, went to talk to the McNaughton family. Now, was this a result of some of the things that you uncovered on your work in the podcast? Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, it, it was definitely because of the podcast, because we, as you remember, people, audiences will remember that uh, we went to the police and they didn't really speak to us too much. And I think that they felt some pressure to come and speak to the family and uh, to actually listen to the podcast. So they did that. And uh, they came to the family and and spoke to them and uh, revealed that they hadn't heard some of the evidence before that had come out of the podcast. And um, we gave them uh, something that we found during one of the dives. And uh, we asked them to go back up to the lake with their own cadaver dogs, which they agreed to do. So it was it was actually a very fortuitous meeting, and the family was very happy with it. And you did have a couple of finds in the lake, as we heard in that update. And I'd recommend to our listeners, that if they haven't listened to that update and they've been following the case, they should. When are we going to hear whether or not there are results from the finds that you found in that spot in the lake? I suspect it's sometime after Christmas. We'll hear uh, from the police, uh, the OPP about the rubber that we found in the first dive, a piece of shoe rubber uh, that looks like it was fairly old, could have matched up with a 70s era shoe, small shoe. And then in the third dive, we found something or a few a few uh, objects, uh, one of them which has resemblance to a tooth. And everybody on site thought, oh, it's a tooth, it's a tooth. But as, you know, we didn't see anything else that looked like this object and we bagged it right away and labeled it and um, I just, you know, I'd rather not uh, project whether it is a tooth or not, but it certainly looks like one and it's very hard. Hmm. Now, your season two case is taking us to Hamilton, Ontario, to investigate the disappearance of Cheryl Shepard. I'm curious as to how this case came your way. Well, in the initial investigation into a number of different cases that we could have covered in SKS, this was one of the cases that we actually considered for season one. It's an interesting case because there's a a single person of interest in the case that police have always thought was a prime suspect who has the same last name as yours, Michael Lavoy. Yeah, I've gotten a lot um, of uh, tweets about that. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael is the prime suspect, and it, that's of always of interest if you have somebody who's already been named as a prime suspect. Uh, there's also a, a family member who's passionate about the case, willing to look back at it in a way that she hadn't before. And indeed, Odette Fisher, uh, Cheryl's mother, has been working with me for diligently for months on the case. She's 70 years old. Hard to keep up to, actually, sometimes. Hmm. And uh, it's, it's a great city to, to, to do a case. It's, it's uh, I don't know if you just like sort of the Pittsburgh of, of Canada, down on its luck, kind of steel town, blue collar workers. And I talk about this in the podcast. It's like a character. It's like a cinematic character. So it seemed kind of perfect for us, given that we try to be kind of cinematic in our presentations. So... Uh, yeah, Hamilton is, is where it's based. It's uh, it's one of those cities that has had a high crime rate uh, in the past. Seems to be on a rebound now. There's a lot of things going on there. It seems like a lot of artists are moving in and uh, prices of houses are low enough so that uh, sort of new communities can start to embed themselves there, apart from the steel industry, which has gone bust. So those are some of the things that went into choosing uh, that case. And also just Cheryl's compelling, it's just a compelling case overall with the engagement on uh, New Year's Eve 1997 and all the other elements that people are listening to as we come out. Now, Odette Fisher, Cheryl's mother, you mentioned that she's used to talking to the media. She has done, done a lot of talking about this case since Cheryl's disappearance. 
Now, she's almost become like an investigative sidekick to you. You actually take her to interviews with other people. Tell me what that experience has been like. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Odette is, uh, she seems game for anything. And sometimes I think she jumps in and gets emotionally caught up in the case, which is to be expected. But Odette's really been important to open the doors to some of these people who I don't know would have talked to me otherwise. In Arm Prior, in uh, the Adrian McNaughton case, I knew everybody I was talking to, or at least they knew who I was or knew my family. And I had to embed myself in Arm Prior in a way that was easier. In Hamilton, I've also kind of embedded myself into the community, but I, I'm not of the place. So when I take Odette with me, she's a familiar face. She knows the people. They're able to talk to her as well as me. And I mean, I don't take Odette on all the interviews and she doesn't want to go on all of them, but uh, some of them have, have been made possible by her presence. I do hear you saying to your subjects sometimes, your potential subjects, that you are working with Odette on the podcast. I think that it is something interesting that works for you in a way. It, it sort of sets the narrative style of the podcast apart a little bit when you have that kind of transparency or letting the listener hear you make those negotiations. How do you make that decision to weave that behind the scenes, how I'm getting this done stuff into the narrative of the show? Well, the transparency of process, I think, is is really important. But you have to be careful because if you, you know, you can get too indulgent on that and it become just all process. And then you get the kind of nobody knows anything people <laughs> talking about, well, nothing really happened there. But in fact, something did happen. All these little interviews that we go to lead somewhere. And whether we get a rejection or not, we get a piece of information that can be used later. I've just found that it's useful to involve you know, to be as transparent as possible about what we're doing. And I think it fits well with the cinematic kind of self-introspective style that I'm trying to, uh, I guess, invoke in the series. I don't know if I'm trying too hard to do it, but that's how it's rolled out. Well, you've certainly discovered some really interesting information, I think, about your victim and her life before her disappearance. And one of my favorite parts of the podcast, you sort of led us into your head and your thinking a little bit. You talk about being affronted. Now, I should say, you've uncovered some possible evidence that maybe she had worked as a sex worker at some point in the past. But we know for sure that as she did in the past, prior to her disappearance, she hadn't for a long time before her disappearance worked as an exotic dancer. And you talk about being affronted by the media coverage around her disappearance, describing her in all the headlines as stripper first, kind of person second. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, when, when Cheryl Shepard is described as a stripper or a, an exotic dancer in the headline, it, it automatically gives credence to one side of the story. And that side would be, you know, Michael Lavoie, who says he dropped Cheryl off at the strip club. And then I have to try to verify whether that happened. But I would say not all the newspapers, but many of them capitalized on that encapsulation of, of the person, Cheryl Shepard, by calling her a stripper. I think it, it moves people towards a biased point of view that somehow she might have asked for it or deserved it or, you know, it's like blaming the victim, you know, to me. And in fact, while being a stripper or a sex worker could lead me as an investigator down certain paths, like who did she come in contact with perhaps during these, you know, processes of possibly doing these things, I don't think it, it describes Cheryl as a person. And I don't, I don't think it's accurate to describe her that way. So that's why I guess affronted is a good way to describe it. Yeah. Between you and me, I was affronted too. I mean, I think it's, it's not... You know, accurate, it's not fair, and it does 
I think when you're talking about a victim, if she had been working as a stripper the night she disappeared and it was contextual to include it in the headline, that's one thing. Um, But one of the things that I'm curious about is, you know, you have in talking to people uncovered in some ways, a really sad life. I mean, she was very unlucky in her relationships. She was connected with some people who I think it's fair to describe as down on their luck. I mean, she had, you know, one of her exes ended up dying in prison, as we heard. And, you know, there was this very convoluted network of people and having relationships with each other and so forth. How has your journey getting to know this victim changed or the telling of the story? Because when you begin, you know, you describe this beautiful, big haired, bubbly, maternal person, you know, universally beloved. And your own reporting has taken you, has has really showed a different side of her. Is that something that you expected when you began? No, I don't think I expected it. But also I just like what I'm struck by when I when I work on it, this case in particular is that. Uh, like mostly it does it seem to be that they're poor people that are in, involved with cold cases rich people don't seem to have problems with people getting their cases solved i just feel like there's some kind of a universal connection to uh cases of women or men that have disappeared or are murdered who come from these kinds of communities and don't have anybody to help them and i'm i'm just struck by by that particularly and i know that that doesn't answer necessarily your question but i feel like i've learned a lot about cheryl everybody's important and i feel like you know i have to continue the investigation with that first and foremost so the more i learn about cheryl it's yes it's a different you know it's a different sort of circle of society certainly not one that i've been directly connected to in growing up but one that i can understand at every step you can see how somebody like cheryl might have ended up in a compromising situation and all the people surrounding her seem to be constantly ending up in those situations and it weaves an interesting story for sure. But, uh, you know, we have to keep our eye on the prize and hope we can come up with a solution for her. I'm curious, not knowing how far ahead you've worked on this, if you can give us a preview of where else this investigation takes you, what we might learn, what kind of surprises we might encounter. I'm not asking you to spoil anything. Just, you know, give us a sense of where we're going. It's really hard to talk about what's coming after episode four, because certainly episode four is kind of a turning point. We start to go get closer and closer and closer to Michael Lavoy, basically, and mm-hmm. to people that knew Michael. And we start to get closer and closer and closer to Cheryl Shepard and what's going on with her or what was going on with her at the time. So with that in mind, I think I'll just leave it at that. But uh, the details keep coming. We keep learning more and more and more. And I don't think audience is going to be disappointed with where we go. Huh, I think it's fair to say this season it sounds like somebody does know something, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, they knew stuff last season, too. It's just, it was a, people just like to riff on that uh, on our title, but anyway. Yeah, well, I can't thank you enough for coming back on our podcast. I'm really enjoying season two. I plan to continue listening and finding out what people know. And know for the record, I am not in any way related to Michael Lavoy. <laughs> Thanks very much. So, Kevin, what did you think of my conversation with David Ridgen? I didn't like it. <laughs> Harry's is a great gift to give this holiday season. Wait, what is a great gift to give? Harry's razors. <laughs> you didn't really not like my conversation with David Ridgen. Harry's razors is the perfect <laughs> gift to give you the loved one in your life. 
I mean, what do you love most about shaving with Harry's? I'll tell you what I love the most about shaving with Harry's. It's a good, clean shave, and I don't have to wait behind that plastic container trying to break in and get the razors like I'm a criminal. What, like in a drugstore? Like in a drugstore. <laughs> it's like it being at Fort Knox. I just want to shave. <laughs> I'd much rather have Harry's come and send me their patented razors, five blades, German engineered. They feel so good on my face. In fact, I know someone who's going to back me up. Toby, you give Harry's as gifts, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, today I had two... Uh, for anonymous people who may not be listening to this podcast, <laughs> might be getting for Christmas a Harry's razor because I got two sets today that I ordered, and uh, yeah, I love Harry's razors. I'm running out of people to give them to, quite honestly. We recently gave some Harry's razors too to a couple of your relatives, your dad and your brother-in-law, and they went, excuse my language, ape shit over those Harry's razors. Well, the Harry's shave <laughs> set is great. Comes in a nice box. It's practical and nice. But you know what? I, I would say. When you're thinking of gifts to give to men, I mean, men are always kind of hard to shop for. What do you want? I don't want to know. Men don't really do anything that is That's sexist. considered pampering, right? <laughs> they would never buy, like, a kit that came with a nice skin balm or any of the great other products that Harry's have. This is a great gift to give because it's something that a guy may not expect to get, and he probably never would think of trying a razor other than that plastic disposable one that he's got to, like, wait for. <laughs> to get someone to unlock the to thing. Unlock Behind it. that plastic Behind thing? That plastic. <laughs> and who's fooling who? You know he's not the one going down shopping to buy that. You're doing all the work I'm around the, the house. It's like... a gift you give yourself. Give yourself <laughs> the gift of freedom. Give him a nice clean face with Harry's. This holiday Harry's has ready to gift shave sets at all different price points starting at just $15. All come with a razor handle of your choice, shaving cream, replacement blades, and a travel cover. And their Winston set includes an engravable chrome handle you want to add that personal touch. Oh, like Harry Winston. Yeah. Fancy. Yeah. So go to harrys.com right now and get a holiday shave set. And don't forget to enter code CRIME Crime. at checkout for $5 off. That's harrys, H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, code CRIME. Crime. It's a legitimately better shaving experience. Aww. Absolutely. You're talking about your face, though, right, Toby? I just got, like, a fancier box of Harry's, which was very nice. It was, like, it actually really looked like a nice gift, and it came in a lovely blue box. It was, like, the step-up one. Mm -hmm. um, very nice. Oh. So I will be giving that out for Christmas. Harry's.com code crime. Yeah. Crime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no, you should check out. It looks nice. All right, so let's move on to our conversation about Someone Knows Something Season 2. And Kevin, just for clarification, you did, in fact, enjoy my interview with David Richards. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad David came back a second time. I was, we actually, I don't think we've ever had a return. Maybe Wyrick, but other than that, I don't think we've had He's a return so nice. podcaster. He's so nice. Uh, especially after, you know, the grief that he got from Us. both the panel and our, <laughs> our listeners and our tweeters and our voicemail people and... He got it, and that's sort of his sensibility. He was great about it. So I just want to talk about the contrast in style and tone. Last week, we talked about Crime Town, a podcast that inspired Toby to open up our show with an F-bomb because <laughs> it's like so the Goodfellas of podcasts. Let's talk about the change in tone. Toby, how do you feel about this textural change, and what do you think of the texture of Someone Knows Something Season 2? Yeah, I mean, it's more like the podcast we've been listening to before Crime Town. I mean, I think Crime Town is the outlier. I'll start off by saying that I, I do, I really like season two. And I think when we talked about season one, we talked about how much we like David Ridgen. 
how we thought it was well produced, that really the the problem was that there was a story that there wasn't much to, and then it didn't really go anywhere, in, in my view. And I think this time, he does have a very interesting story, which I think he, he does a good job of telling, and I think he's an appealing guide. Now, Laura, you told me in an email that you find it interesting the victim in this case is not a victim that would be considered, quote, book worthy, at least in the true crime publishing world or, you know, in terms of the true crime, like storytelling pop culture world. What do you mean by that? And what do you think about the victim in this case? What I was getting at, and I don't mean to diminish the fact that this poor woman was killed, but when you, you know, traditional true crime books and like shows like 2020 and Dateline, you know, there's there's kind of a standard formula and it's like you want lifestyles of the rich and famous or a love triangle or somebody leading a secret life. And in this case, you know, we have a woman who was a stripper, may have been a prostitute, kind of living on the edge, living with her mother, working in a donut shop. And this is not a case that... I think would typically get a lot of that media attention. But in listening to this, I mean, it's really sort of shedding light on, you know, the toll that a crime like this has on family members, because there are so many of these crimes that don't get reported because they don't meet that flashy dateline or, you know, TV book type of case. But this this is really showing kind of the other side of it, that this is something that is really still affecting these people, how it's affecting them, how the mother Odette is coping with this, and just sort of the the sad life that this poor woman was leading before she was killed. I feel like there's going to be a lot more about things that, that nobody knew about that were going on with her. Yeah, it does seem like she did have not necessarily a secret life, but definitely a life that people closest to her, her mother in particular, didn't know about and is learning about. During the reporting that would be of the called podcast. a secret life. Well, but it didn't seem to be like it was secret to other people in her circle. She seemed like she had a lot of circles of people, yeah. some of whom were exposed to different aspects of her life, and her mother wasn't. I mean, we start out with this very optimistic victim portrait. Odette is a very sympathetic um, mm-hmm. character in the story, obviously. And, you know, we get a sense that that Cheryl has had a rough time. She was married twice before. We know at least one of those relationships uh, was allegedly abusive, maybe both, um, that she's, you know, unable to have children, that she was maternal, that she worked as a stripper, but then was trying to turn her life around and was working at like a Tim Hortons, which is a, a great Canadian detail as an aside. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there was more to her. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, Kevin, you know, Laura was talking about what makes a case a Dateline case. I think the one detail that does make this case stick in the public's imagination in that area of Canada was that television proposal. People saw her getting engaged on TV. Yeah, that's an interesting piece of the story. It's a good hook because she disappeared, what, like two days later? Yeah. It was, yeah. And so you have to wonder, you know, what happened in her life slash that relationship where they go from that very public joyous moment to her vanishing. Mm -hmm. So for at least four episodes now, everything just seems to point in one direction, which is at her fiancé. Michael Lavoie. Michael Lavoie. No relation to me. Lavoie. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no relation to you. Yeah, that is an interesting thing. And I, I know, you know, we're kind of going a little tisk tisk about how the media played up the angle of her being a uh, a stripper a stripper but you know when you do talk about what a, a book worthy crime victim is which is different and lawyers right different from a podcast you know what a publisher would want if it's something salacious then 
it's it's more attractive to a publisher. If it leads, it leads. It's yeah. Kind of a, yeah. But if it's you know somebody from the trailer park and she's literally from a trailer park, publishers don't want that. That's too. That's not us saying that. That's, that's not, not us saying it. That no, no, no. We've that's literally what, heard that's that from the, publishers. Yeah, that's yeah. what we writers yeah. have heard before when you were talking about bookworthy. So it is one of those cases where, despite the fact that you have. You know, this great video, the love connection, and that crazy, creepy DJ. Someone should be looking at that DJ. <laughs> you know, besides that, uh, it seems like, you know, you could see how it could fall through the media cracks. Now, one of the things, Laura, that I have mixed feelings about, and I understand why David's doing it, and this is a style thing, and this is not me saying that he's wrong to do it. It's just a different approach that I have mixed feelings about is that Odette is his primary source in his investigation and that, you know, we do hear him talking to sources saying he's making the podcast with her. And it's very much driven from where he started with her and what she told him. And she's in it an awful lot. It strikes me as a fairly non-objective approach to investigating a crime case. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, and he even talked about that. I think his approach really is that he seems to work with families to try to get cold cases attention so that hopefully they'll be solved. So it's it's really different to me. I mean, I don't know if I would call it an investigation because, I mean, it's become kind of clear as we're listening to, not that it's not an investigation, but Odette is really in the dark about a lot of what was going on with her daughter at the time that she was killed or disappeared. It's just a different type of way of approaching the story, kind of, you know, working alongside her. But I think it makes it hard because you're getting emotionally invested with her, which makes it hard to take a step back and maybe be a little more objective when you're feeling so sorry for her. Like when they're driving back and he's she's like, you want a donut? I'm going to get a, you know, and he's like, oh, I'll get a donut a, because that was a nice scene. That was a it nice was scene. nice, but it, it, it was very sweet. But it was like it showed you that this story is more him developing a relationship with Odette is almost as much a part of the story in some regard as him investigating the crime. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think a big part of the storytelling style, too. And Toby, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Is David Ridgen's writing, the way he writes for himself in the show, it's very different from what we hear in other podcasts. What do you think of his style and his of the writing of his narration and the way he sort of draws listeners through the story, Toby? You know, I think sometimes his his sort of syntax uh, gets a little purple for my taste. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by uh, that? So, well, I just mean it, it gets like, I don't know, if poetic or... It's sort of more writerly than you usually get. So it's, I, I mean, I can't remember anything exactly, but it would be like, you know, the the shadows cross the street, like oil slick, you know, st- similes and, and metaphors and stuff. I don't think that's the strongest part of the show is that part of it. I do think he does a very good job of doing some stuff you, you would do in novels, he gives you some very good physical locations, you know, that, that can kind of anchor the story. So he spends a lot of time in the apartment building. There's, in this this last episode, quite a bit of talk about, what was it, the Concord Hotel or, yeah. or whatever that strip club was this called. This is episode four you're talking about, right? Right. And then the alleyway. So I, I think that's good. I think he's pretty good about sort of drawing out the different relationships that she had with different men and how those men sort of viewed each other. So I, I think he does a lot of stuff really well. And at times it, it seems like fiction. 
not that I don't believe what he's doing, but that I think he, he uses a lot of techniques, you know, some, some of it's structured more like fiction than, than some of these other podcasts. But sometimes the writing does get a little, I don't know, fancy for want of a better word. That doesn't really bother me very much, but I don't think that's the strength of the podcast. Kevin's literally raising his hand to talk right now. He's dying to say I, something. Yeah, I, I agree with Toby, only stronger. You know, when I said that his writing is literary, those things like belong in a book because they cannot be said aloud. That is not the way people speak. And that's his voice there really is for a book and it's not for radio slash audio it's slash not for podcast. You. It's not for anybody. People don't no no, people don't speak like that. Right, and it happens, and this is what Toby's talking about. Every time you, he introduces us to somebody, it sounds like this. Toby Ball walks into the room. He has salt and pepper hair, mostly salt. He looks like someone who was rejected from his junior high basketball team Aww. and is still holding a grudge. Aww. It's always that kind of shit. Right, Toby? Am I, am, did I just put, <laughs> isn't it that? Well, you're no, saying that no, Toby no, no, no. is so didn't. mean. <laughs> it, 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 it's Toby, it, were it's you like rejected? That. No, I, I, I was just using Toby as an example, obviously. <laughs> I, but I'm it's always teasing. something like that. It's about how, there was the thing about how the dog was like, looked like he was trying to touch something with his tongue. It borders on self-parody. <laughs> it really is. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think Kevin's doing a better job of describing it than I was. Although I think I, I don't feel quite as strongly as yeah, Kevin does. Really but, I, but 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 you're doing you're doing a better job of pointing out what the issue is. I can see where some people would like it, and I also think if you listen to a lot of audiobooks, exactly, um, that's exactly what I was about to you're say. You're probably more used to it. <laughs> yes, but I guess it's a little bit more jarring when you go from that to then talking to Odette and just hearing her talk. Right. It, it also is more jarring when you go from something thoughtful and flowery like that to the actual interview part, which is so slow and pedantic, and, and I can't even hear what they're saying. They're mixing it so low. Maybe I'm the outlier, but I really do not like this podcast. Wow. It is mixed poorly. It's a good story, told very poorly. Wow. And I was the one, you know, six months ago who said, I like this guy. The season one is the wrong thing. I'm looking forward to season two. Right. And we got into it and nine minutes into episode one, he finally meets Odette and he says, well, I'll just record you making the coffee. And I thought to myself, Jesus fucking Christ, here we go again. <laughs> and it's and that's what it is. And it's a lot of pedantic it's too slow talking. For me. It's too Laura, I listen to this now at twice the speed and it is still too slow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I am sorry. I'm I'm, no, I'm sorry David because I I feel badly because he came on and everything, but I really just thought like all of the deficiencies I thought with season 1, so I thought was, had to do with the case. Right. It has to do with the storytelling and the whole the whole thought about how this is played out. This is a really interesting story. But it's not being told well. Hmm. Listen, like we should have started with the wood chipper. And then there's, and then there's like you know <laughs> every time every time like talks to someone, it's like well someone said well he had a cup of coffee and then he'll interject. Twenty years ago, it was hard to tell whether or not that was coffee or decaf. But I'll talk to the coffee pot later. <laughs> it's like you know like every time something I'm gonna I'll be, I'll be sure to make a note of that. It's like I don't care. Just just talk to the coffee pot already, or don't tell me about the coffee pot until it's important. You know, he's trying to be like so overly transparent. I just, I'm just like, I just can't. I, I, I just can't. Let me tell you what I hear. I can't even. Let me tell you what I hear. What do you hear? I hear what you hear, but what I hear is somebody who has a filmmaking background, mm -hmm. trying to do the visuals with words 
in a way yeah. that that is jarring if you are accustomed to listening to reporting and podcasts like we have. But I will say, as Toby said, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. And uh-huh. lately, <laughs> coincidentally, I am like into book 15 of a 16 book Canadian mystery series, which sounds an awful lot like but this that podcast. That prose was written for you to read on a page and it is being read aloud in that se- Listen, Radio people do not read newspaper I articles. I understand. But There's you, a reason for that. But can I tell you it something? It is actually, a different actually, way. Actually, they do? No, they, no <laughs> we're not talking about reading for the blind. We're talking no. about there's a difference between broadcast writing and print writing. Listen, I And get, you can put a transcript of broadcast writing on a page, or you can read aloud on the radio, the newspaper. It's two different things. They don't work well interchangeably all the time. This is a time when it doesn't work. For you. For me. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's the point well, I'm think- making is that it, you have to think about the audience. This isn't for you, and that's okay. Like I have no problem with you hating this, by the way. No, no yeah, problem yeah. at all. I have the same, some of the same issues that you do. I don't feel as strongly about them because I also have a begrudging, not even begrudging. I have a respect for anybody who's trying something new and different mm-hmm. and bringing their own skill set to apply in the audio world. I see the audio world is so exciting with like limitless potential. I think there's room for a lot of different storytelling styles, whether or not it's for you. That's okay. But yeah, I mean, I hear you. I hear that the writing isn't ideal for audio, news, storytelling. Some of the episodes are too long. There's a lot of exposition that doesn't need to be there. So I don't disagree, but it's okay. It's okay, Kevin. It's just so fun to see it's you. Okay. So open just, yeah. I've never, what's going on in the closet over La- there? My God. He's exploding. Laura, what were you going to say? You know, we went from Crime Town to this, and Crime Town was very dynamic and it was a completely different style. And I'll be honest, like, I, I definitely am somebody that has an attention span that when I'm listening to a podcast, you know, if I'm driving down the road, all of a sudden I'll start thinking about something else. If it's a podcast that's kind of dragging along, and then I'm like, oh shit, now I have to go back and listen again. Crime Town was like just very, I loved it, and it was easy to listen to, and I didn't have that happen. But I feel like we've had a couple podcasts in a row that we've listened to where it's been almost the same case in different areas of the world Mm. with like the troubled woman who's missing and she's probably dead and the boyfriend is probably the suspect and nobody really knows what happened but we're gonna have the documentary person go out and try to figure out what happened and so for me I think it was more that we've had a lot of cases I feel like that have been similar cases told in a similar fashion. And I want to see some different types of victims. I want to see some different types of crimes, some different types of murders on podcast. Because I feel You're like dark, people... Laura Bricker. Maybe a male victim. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I mean. A male victim. Let's have somebody that Here was involved in Here come the Daniel Morgan crazy... emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you know what I mean? Like something, people are sort of following the same formula in terms of the type of cases and how they're approaching them. And um, for me, this one just moved a little too slowly. I mean, I like the case, but I was like, when they get to that woodchepper thing, I'm like, ooh, more about that. You that's what I want to like. Yeah, I'm like, that's like right up front. Like, oh, my God, why do they think that? Who's saying that? Or is that just something they're just kind of like speculating about? It was very unclear to me. Now, we did get an email from a listener named Michael who agrees with you, Laura. Uh, here's what he said. I think we've all heard that there are two kinds of cold cases, one where the police don't really know who did it and one where the police know for sure who did it and can't prove it. 
This is clearly a case of the second kind. There's so much circumstantial evidence pointing to the ex that it makes the case uninteresting. The credulous behavior of Ridgen attempting to dig in something that has no depth is driving me crazy. At the end of the first episode where he said something to the effect of, there have to be other suspects, I actually said out loud, no, there doesn't. (laughs) 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 Now, um, this actually makes me think about Missing and Murdered, the Connie Walker podcast, which, by the way, Mm -hmm. I think is very different from this show even though they're both from the CBC, mm-hmm. even though you hear in our conversations with both David and Connie talking about standards and practices, I've sort of produced by the same companies at large. And I think she just has a very different approach. I know her approach as a reporter is very different than the approach of a documentarian. But the one thing the cases have in common, even though the podcasts are so different, is the likely suspect, right? In this podcast, right, it's Michael right. Lavoie. In Missing and Murder, the likely prime suspect is not a willing participant in the podcast, but we do hear Connie and her team bring him into the story over and over again by attempting to actually get a comment from him, to talk to him. You know, we hear her sitting outside his house and trying to interview him. Here, Michael Lavoie is completely absent. And David, in our interview, said he was getting closer, but I don't necessarily feel like we're getting closer at all. I feel like we need to hear from him or at least some attempts to talk to him directly or hear about where he is now, what he's doing now. If we're going to use his name, uh, Laura, Mm -hmm. do you think the listeners just need some more from Michael Lavoie or about Michael Lavoie himself? Yeah. I mean, that's I'm just like we are like I want to know who is this guy? What does he do? Like where he's been since then? Why the police? I I want more information about this guy because it's pretty clear he's the suspect. I mean, I don't know if I'm the only one who thinks this, but I'm like this whole proposal. I feel like it was entirely staged because he'd already planned to kill her. And it was like an attempt to throw off suspicion from him, because why would he kill her if he just proposed to her? And so I really want more information about him. I think that is what we're missing as we're driving around talking to these people who really I just want more about this guy. I think it's less likely that the proposal was an elaborate plot than this was just a very volatile relationship with some violent aspects to it and that it was a very up and down, tempestuous thing that ended in a bad way. That's my strong feeling. Uh, Obviously, I'm not... I don't know anything enough about the case to make an accusation, and that would be irresponsible anyway. <laughs> one, one detail I, I've just speculated. <laughs> one, one detail I want to point out that I do think is really interesting, just in terms of the fact that it was included, whether or not you think it was written well, Kevin, let's take that out of the picture. Sure. But David does talk about just doing a lot of poking around on Facebook and like finding clues on Facebook. Mm-hmm. That's something that we've done before, right? Yeah, because you know one of the great things we think about... St- Serial Season 1, Episode 2, when they're reading Hayes' diary. Yes. What a great way to find out about a victim, someone who has passed away, about their life and what they think. But they thought in real time. They thought in real time. And not a lot of us keep diaries anymore. However, we do have this digital footprint where we are tweeting and Facebooking. Facebook more is really more like with the people that you know. It is, you know, a sort of a modern-day diary. It's a... Um, a timeline of the things that you were doing and the things that you thought were funny and the other troubles that you got into. And so as a writer, it is a good resource to sort of track down sort of what that person was up to because they're not around to tell you. It's also a great way to find sources. And very much like in this sure, case, yeah, yeah. especially getting back to the Lizzie Marriott murder, there was a Facebook page set up about Lizzie Marriott, a memorial page. And we actually found sources for our book 
from people who posted on that page. Mm-hmm. We also found sources from our book for people who were related to Seth and his karate teaching career because we looked at the Karate Studios right. Facebook page. We found like legit sources, people in the theater community in New Hampshire who were sort of in that circle for that story. I think the learning about the way someone is telling a story, the way they're finding clues is interesting. Toby, I just would like to give you a chance to counter Kevin a little bit because he was came out so strongly anti this mm-hmm. this season two of Someone Knows Something. Tell us a little bit about what you liked about it and why people maybe should give it a listen if they think it might be for them. Do I get to start off with like, Kevin, you ignorant slut? Yes, please. <laughs> please do. Please do. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll tell you. This, and maybe I, maybe I give, maybe I'm giving him a pass on some stuff. Because I think what I like about this podcast is I think it's a better picture of the way things go than a lot of the other things, that it, which is about as imprecise a statement as you could make. You know, I, I think that her story is probably more common than any of the other stories we've really listened to, except for maybe Missing and Murdered, in that it's a person who's definitely sort of living on the margins and her in abusive relationships, it seems most likely it's a domestic murder. It seems like the most likely truth behind the whole thing. So I think the idea that you're looking at something that's probably pretty typical, but giving it a close look and really doing the kind of work that is usually reserved for something that's unusual I think that in itself is both interesting and I think it kind of instructive and it's more true to the way life generally goes and the way these murders generally happen than, you know, almost anything else we've listened to. You know, the closest thing I, when I was thinking about this this podcast and I was thinking about making a murderer in that, again, you have Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey, who are both, again, they're they're sort of living on the margins to a certain extent. The difference there seemed to me to be the victims in that you had victims who weren't living on the margins. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're middle-class women who are victims. And this led to, you know, aggressive prosecution, at least in one case, definitely, and maybe in another case, wrongful convictions. But then in the case of uh, Cheryl... You know, clearly it it was not pursued with the same aggression. You know, does that make it worth listening to six or eight hours of a podcast? You know, maybe not. But for me, what I find interesting is that I think it is a more typical portrait. And I think, you know, he's really spending a lot of time in looking into something that would otherwise be pretty anonymous. Mm -hmm. That's my case for it. I think that's a solid argument. I would make the case, I would say this, if you want something with a lot of action and you want things to move quickly and you want to be addicted and feel like, you know, I can't wait for the next minute, this may not be the podcast for you. If you are the kind of person who loves listening to long, luxurious audiobooks and loves prose, this could be the podcast for you. I think it's sort of... I don't think it's for everyone, but I do think that there is a listener for it. I know there are parts of it that I really enjoy. There are parts of it that I don't feel are for me, but I feel that way about a lot of podcasts. I mean, some of them, I there are certain episodes I love and others I don't, but I, I like the work as a body and I appreciate the ambition. 
of the work. And I like David a heck of a lot. Sure. He's a nice guy. He is. How do you know? You didn't talk to him. No, I didn't. But and you probably I've never will now. Inter- yeah, you, we're not exchanging <laughs> Christmas cards, I guess. <laughs> what about you, Laura? What was the case that you could make for or against our listeners uh, subscribing to and listening to season two of Someone Knows Something? So I think if you're interested in sort of the other side of the criminal justice system in terms of a case that really highlights, you know, the impact of a crime on a very regular, ordinary family and friends of a victim. And and just the, the aftermath of this case and the fact that, you know, here it is and nobody aside from David Ridgen is really interested in this case anymore aside, you know, from the family members that sort of fallen off. But I agree with Rebecca. If you are into long, drawn-out podcasts, I have a short attention span. I'm always running around like a crazy person during the day. So for me, it was a little bit too slow. But there were certain parts of it that I really found interesting. And I I really need him to find out more about that wood chipper. (laughs) And and not for nothing, but Dave Ridgen's work is getting law enforcement to move on something, at least in the Mm -hmm. Adrian McNaughton case. You know, whether or not that actually anything turns up from that is one thing. But the fact that... It stirred some interest and put some pressure on investigators to look into it, I think is interesting. And it's a lot about the medium. And by the way, this show, Someone Knows Something, very popular in Canada. And it just won a big online media award for being the best podcast of 2016. What, in Canada? Kevin! Canada is like... I love Canada. Yes, I know, even though you offended them like a couple weeks ago with your <laughs> assessment of the coast of Canada. <laughs> if we don't have an international incident at least once an episode... You owe Canada an apology jobs. for your um, description of the islands as having igloos on them, which apparently is not accurate. <laughs> I... <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, you want to have the final word? Yeah, I'm going to say that this is not something that our listeners should invest their time in. There's a lot of great podcasts that have just dropped out of the sky and they're much better. So my vote is that no, you're not missing anything by skipping season two of Someone Knows Something because I'm willing to bet in the end nobody's going to know anything again. And I think it's a split decision. I think some of our listeners would enjoy it and some wouldn't. That's not exactly giving me the last word. Like you said, now it's, it's time your to- last word. Yeah, my last word. <laughs> now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call The, the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. Santa is welcomed into the home's world over on Christmas Eve, but apparently he's not welcome at Six Flags over Texas. Mm. Jerry Henderson, who bears a striking resemblance to St. Nick, was at the park over the weekend. He was wearing a red vest and a hat and posing for pictures and handing out candy canes. But Henderson doesn't work for the park, so security told him he had to change his outfit or leave. He offered to remove the hat and vest, but drew the line when the park reportedly asked him to get rid of his beard. <laughs> Henderson says he does this Quick, all bring the time. Me a Harry's razor, stat. <laughs> Henderson says he does this all the time. He never approaches children; rather, it's their parents that come to him and ask for photos. The park says they can't allow non-employees interacting with small children, and that Henderson is breaking the park's no costume policy. So, crime writer, straightforward question: If you were the man of this Six Flags, how would you handle this Santa scandal? Laura, I'm going to start with you. I don't know. I feel like there has to be more to this story because it seems really out of bounds. I mean, it sounds pretty harmless what he's doing. So I feel like there's either more to the story or Six Flags there is just a little uptight because what's the big deal? I mean, he say he goes out for exercise. That was the other thing. This is their exercise. He and his wife, they walk around the park. Who cares? <laughs> 
What about you, Unless Toby? he's a pedophile. He could be a pedophile. We don't know. <laughs> but so could Santa. That, that, we don't really know. That's the big if. <laughs> that is the bit, that's kind of the point of the if. <laughs> what about you, Toby? What do you think? Uh, I think if he's super nice, he should just be allowed to do it. But if he's a pedophile, then not. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. No, are you, I, are you I, a pedophile? I, oh, you have to yeah, leave now. No, it's. I mean, I'm sure he's probably a nice guy, but to me, as a parent, it seems super sketchy, and it also seems a little weird that parents are actually approaching him with their kids. Some guy who kind of not only looks like Santa, but is also dressing like Santa, <laughs> and, but it has no official Santa designation, and going up to him and be like, "Can my kids sit on your lap?" It just seems. What about Mick Foley, the wrestler? He dresses up as Santa all sketchy. the time and does that. Yeah. Well, here, here's but, how. But you know who he is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going to do a rare thing here. Instead of like uh, not like having an opinion and just going last, I'm going to actually go third. And Kevin, you can go last right. this time. Sometimes there's someone who looks a hell of a lot like Santa Claus. And there's a guy like that in New Hampshire, right? He's a natural beard Santa. What is mm-hmm. it called? Yeah, so they call him, yeah. And he plays Santa like in Boston. Like he's really good. Like he looks just like you would imagine Santa would look. But he looks like that all the time. Because guess what? If you're going to be Santa Claus at Christmas and you're going to look convincing, that's actually what you look like all year long, right? right. Yeah, yeah. And it is very natural, I think, for little kids, when they see someone who looks exactly like Santa Claus, to like want to approach the guy who looks like Santa Claus, right? Right, yeah. So this guy, I'm guessing, has kind of embraced this as sort of like his persona, as old men are wont to do. I'm just guessing that it's sort of it's become part of his life, that like he looks like Santa, so he started dressing a little bit like Santa. I think Six Flags probably makes a little bit of money with characters and costumes dressing up in like licensed outfits walking around the park and that that's a little bit of a business for them, right? Having like whatever characters oh, they yeah, license. Oh yeah, they charge you a lot. Yes, mm-hmm. to pose for photos with I don't know, DC characters or Marvel characters or whatever, and they see someone chipping away at the bottom line and they were not cool with it. That's my opinion, and I think if you actually look like Santa Claus, people just need to step off, because Santa Claus is magic, and I believe a little bit. (laughs) Kevin, what do you think? So I guess I'll be the Scrooge again on this. I think that the park did the right thing. I saw the TV interview with the guy, and he's a nice guy. And does he look like Santa? Oh yeah, he's got he's a full beard, and he he does this a lot, and that's fine. But I think you know what's the story behind it? Well, it was probably a lawsuit at some point, somebody somewhere, either an actual one or the fear of one. If that Santa Claus did something to a child, it doesn't have to be. I knew a Santa Claus that was accused of pinching a kid on his lap while taking a photograph. Was this in New Hampshire? This sounds so familiar. Yeah, it was. Now, all of a sudden, who is liable for that? If something happens with a kid, Santa Claus steps on his foot by accident or decides he's a brat and punches him in the nose or whatever, it's going to be Six Flags that's going to get hit with the suit. It may be that he's not approaching kids and the parents are approaching Santa on the kid's behalf. But how many of those parents actually know that this guy doesn't work there? Anyone else think that Kevin maybe, like, isn't feeling the Christmas spirit this week? (laughs) I know. I'm 100% with Kevin on this. Oh, really? I think Kevin's the Christmas crab. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I just think, I, I don't think that there's any malice with this guy at all. You just can't go to a 
private area where there's a private business and start acting like Santa Claus without the company knowing because the liability on that is so high. So, Toby, you're with Kevin. Yeah, I mean, I the only reason why it's okay is that you're assuming that this person is like nice and he's not going to be kind of sketchy about it. But if you let him do it, you know, what's keeping some super sketchy guy from showing up dressed up as, you know, whatever and saying, well, that guy can do it. I can do it, too. You can't just look at him and say, oh, he seems like a nice guy and he looks like Santa. So let's let's have kids cuddle up to him. That, to me, seems extremely questionable. All right. Well, we should probably end it on that note. This is a brilliant internet podcast full of discord this evening. Peace on Earth. (laughs) Goodwill to all. Hey, can I tell you guys something? Sure. Do you know that people still don't know that we have outtakes at the end of this podcast? Yeah, somebody was like, oh, where are those outtakes? (laughs) Well, they started listening to the uh, the credits and it's like, they're done. Yeah. So let me just say something. Listen through to the very end of our show. You might get a little surprise at the end. Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to tweet to you and find out some recipes for what you're cooking this Christmas, how can they reach you on Twitter? I'm at Laura Bricker, and I have some holiday cheer here to combat the last part of this discussion. Wait, 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 um, wait. We have, Do you have a cat of the week? Yes, I have a cat of the week. Yes. We have some cats in very much in the holiday spirit, Mufasa and Muka, <laughs> and they have Santa, not even Santa suits, they have Santa sweaters and hats, and they sent a very nice card to Stampy this week. Guess what? Um, Six flags would kick those motherfuckers out. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Mufasa and Muka. They were very nice. So those are Lauren LaPointe's cats. Also, we have Dee, I don't know her name, Dee's cat, Pumpkin the Elf, she might kill you hmm. on the other side. And Pumpkin was kind of like the grumpy cat wearing a little elf suit. So there's some holiday cheer for you. Toby, if our listeners want to tweet with you, how can they reach you on the social media? As always, at Toby Ball NH. <laughs> And Kevin Flynn, we're going to be back the week after next, right? Yeah, we won't be here for Christmas. We'll be here for New Year's. If our listeners want to tweet to you sometime between now and the holiday and maybe get you to buck up a little bit, get a little (laughs) bit of that Christmas spirit, how can they reach you on Twitter? Well, you can tweet to me at my Twitter verified account, at Kevin P. Flynn. Way to rub it in, Flynn. I still have more followers than you do. And if you want to send me a tweet or follow me on Instagram, you can find me at RebLavoy. Find the show on Twitter at CrimeWritersOn. Sign up for our newsletter and buy stuff using our Amazon link at our website, CrimeWritersOn.com. Bookmark that link. Make it a shortcut on your smartphone. Whatever it takes, it really helps us out. Email us questions and voice memos at CrimeWritersOn at gmail.com. Please review the show on iTunes. It keeps us on the charts. But you know what also helps? Tell your friends to listen. Maybe someday we'll be included on one of those year-end best of lists. <laughs> Who knows? Even for Canada. <laughs> Before you close your podcast app, check out our sister show. These are their stories, the Law & Order podcast. It's a good time. Our handsome and smart line producer is Henry Lavoy. He's got good genes, too. Our theme music was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the way-too-small space we've crammed full of high-tech, heat producing gear that used to be a closet in our basement on behalf of all the crime writers thanks so much for listening we will catch you later i want to talk about the scientology thing no why not no i mean if you thought amanda knox was crazy i'd love to talk about amanda knox (laughs) 
they came for me. Remember, they came know. for it's me. Really my good. car blew yeah. up. It's really fun. But we I love the Scientology. The Scientology thing. thing before. I know. Yeah, they don't come for you. I mean, they come for you. Who cares? That's what I think we should do, Kevin. You've been outvoted. We should do it. I'd rather talk about the mob, honest to God. No, we're talking about No, Scientology. honest to God, I would rather talk about mobsters. You want to take the week off? I'd, I'd rather <laughs> I like take the, the week off. I like both. You can't. I'd, like rather, ta- I'd rather take the week off than, than f*** around with... Because like, they're crazy. You're not allowed to take the week off. Okay, we're going to do a pre-roll and a mid-roll for sock clubs. Everybody know their roles? We want to thank again Sock Club for sponsoring today's episode. <laughs> Our friends at Sock Club, Club. <laughs> provide a little gift Sock Club. A, a big impact <laughs> to make you look like an expert gift giver. Each package includes quality American-made socks, a customizable gift message, and a printable membership certificate, so all you last-minute shoppers are covered, too. Just for listeners of Crime Writers On... Sock Club! Sock Club! Are we on a delay or something? Sock Club Club. is offering 15% off subscriptions. Go to SockClub.com and use code Crime, crime at crime. checkout. Give sock, sock club. Sock club. Oh God, this holiday season. Best socks you'll ever get. Promo code crime. Why do you keep stepping on the end of my pre-roll and post-rolls? I can't help it. You can't help it. <laughs> Partners in, in crime, crime media. media.